Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 199 being recorded on Wednesday, November 20th. 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back. Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, it's pretty exciting times here. It's November 20th. We are about seven days away from Thanksgiving. T minus seven days, folks, till holiday kicks in. Some would argue it kicked in right after Halloween, but uh, I like to think of it really kind of kicking off at Thanksgiving. Uh, Jason, let's kick off. Uh, I saw on Twitter some noise around the world's largest Starbucks. Were you the first person in there? Sadly, I was not. Uh, side note on Thanksgiving, I've been training all week by eating pumpkin pies. Nice. Yeah, getting ready. You're ready. Yeah, I think it's a rookie mistake to just go into Thanksgiving cold without a good warm-up. Good. Have you been pumpkin spice latte into it as well? I don't. I stick with my classic ice drink year-round. Yeah. I'm weird. But uh, I did try to get my classic ice drink at the world's largest Starbucks, which opened on Friday, so a little less than a week ago in Chicago, and I struck out. Uh, So I was out of town Friday. I went there Saturday morning at 8 o'clock when the store scheduled to open, and there was already an hour line waiting to get in. Wow. And I had uh, families and toddler with me, so uh, we had to abort and... uh, do a plan B. So I'll have to go back and visit it another time, but uh, kind of an impressive draw that it's drawing that kind of crowd for a retail store opening. You think being the world's largest, it could hold more people? That was my premise. I actually thought it would be popular, but it would still be easy to get in because it's, so it's on Michigan Avenue, which is like the premier shopping location on, in Chicago. And this was formerly the Crate and Barrel flagship store. So it was a four-story, 40,000 square foot furniture store that they've converted into a coffee roastery. So my assumption was it could hold an awful lot of people, but apparently they're still, they were still sort of um, gating how many people they let in. Now, is this one of those um, that uh, doesn't really have much mobile order? It's got a big food concentration. There's no venti takeaway cups, all that kind of strangeness. Uh, semi. So the, the concept, this is called the reserve roastery. I want to say it's the, like fifth one, if I have this right. The first one was in Seattle. Uh, there's another one in New York. This is the third one in the U.S. Um, there's one in Shanghai. There's one in Italy, um, which is controversial. Um, and so this is like the premier Starbucks concept. It was a pet project of uh, the found, uh, Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. Um, and so it does have all the regular stuff. You could place a mobile order there. You can get all your traditional drinks. Um, but it has a lot more stuff. So they roast beans there. And if you go to any Starbucks anywhere in the world and you buy a reserve bean, the beans that come in the the black and gold packaging, Mm -hmm. got roasted in one of these roasteries. So Mm -hmm. so it is a a commercial roastery, but then they have kind of a, you know, it's a a beautiful um, kind of handmade roastery with all glass windows so you can watch them working. And they have kind of a Willy Wonka setup where they have these uh, translucent vacuum tubes that lead from the roastery 
to all the coffee bars in the in the building and so the beans like fly through the tubes over your head so you can watch the beans getting delivered for making coffee they'll make any of your classic drinks with a much wider variety of beans they make a bunch of other drinks that aren't typical they make a bunch of drinks mixed with alcohol they have ice cream they have a standalone restaurant they have a big merchandising section um so this is all based on the other roasteries i visited and I'm assuming that what we're going to see, and they're all somewhat localized. So when, I'm assuming what we're going to see is some cool architecture and some variation of all that in this, this Chicago store. But uh, uh, we'll have to report on it after I physically get in one. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm here at home in North Carolina, and you are out in California at Dreamforce. So uh, tell us what's going on at Dreamforce. Yep. So Dreamforce is the annual trade show for Salesforce.com. Salesforce is based in San Francisco, so this is kind of on their home turf. And uh, I saw someone uh, refer to the uh, – it's a quite big show. It's its every hotel room in the city of uh, San Francisco is sold out. I, I think I saw that it was like 40,000 people are here attending it. Um, so they, they call it uh, Burning Man for People with Jobs, which I thought was pretty funny uh, because there is a lot of like – I'll call it brand building entertainment experiences in addition to the sort of Salesforce product experiences. So they have like, you know, really extravagant, um, uh, like, like outdoor forest that they built and they give away free expressos. The forest has like, like a redwood tree that you can drive through and you know, all this kind of cool stuff. And they have a lot of celebrity speakers uh, so Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones is here. Uh, Megan Rapine from U.S. World Cup team is here. Uh, uh, Beckham, the musical act, is like Fleetwood Mac. And then the the big headliner keynote. I mean, Tim Cook is speaking, but the big headliner is Barack Obama speaking tomorrow. So um, they get a lot of interesting to listen to people that are you know probably not talking about the marketing cloud. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so then they, uh, they, they talk a lot about uh, a lot of social kind of stuff, obviously. So the, the CEO of Salesforce is really into that. And then, um, uh, doesn't he usually wear like crazy shoes and stuff. Yeah. 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 He like, so Mark Belioff is a very progressive CEO and he, he, he like sponsors a lot of really good causes. And so he highlights some of those on the stage. Like he, he's built several hospitals in San Francisco and sponsored some public schools and things that are kind of cool. Um, but they do, they have like, they have content about helping people to like be more mindful. And they, they have a whole exhibit full of uh, actual monks that are helping people to meditate. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, they have a lot of, um, they had like Ariana Huffington talking about like trust sleep. and tr transparency and yeah, just, I mean, yeah, she didn't go into the sleep thing, but um, you know, so they, they have a lot of people talking about like their pet interests, which are you know, potentially interesting, helpful lifestyle tidbits. Um, but then they also do generally make some big product announcements at Salesforce. And and so like, I'm not sure this is going to go down as the biggest year, um, but there's some, I, I guess, some reasonably sized, interesting new announcements. Cool. Um, how much of the show, is there like a track for e-commerce and kind of the, um, you know, they're, they're, I guess they call it their commerce cloud now. Uh, is that a thing or is it just kind of sprinkled in 
There is there. So there's a, there's a commerce track. Commerce is like integrated into the, the keynotes along with the other clouds. Um, but I will say they're shifting a little bit more from products to roles. So when they were product-based, like the commerce cloud is about e-commerce and the marketing cloud is about sending emails. Um, and you know, they're, they're kind of shifting the content to be more role-based content. So it's a retailer or a B2C company. And that, that role, you know, would obviously need commerce and marketing cloud and CRM and customer success. Right. So they're, um, I, I would say like they haven't completely transitioned. There still are definitely some product centric tracks and there's, there's a standalone commerce keynote, for example, as well as some dedicated commerce content in the, the main stage keynote. Um, but I do, th- I feel like it is shifting more. It won't surprise me if, if a couple of years from now there's a retail track, not a commerce track, for example. And that's, you know, that's a pretty reasonable thing to do. Yeah. Cool. What other highlights have you seen at the show? Yep. So the, a big one. So one thing that like, obviously is well known to you, but you know, uh, Salesforce is one of the very first cloud companies. So in fact, when they launched the company, they launched it at Oracle world and they, they did like fake picketing outside of Oracle work world saying like, like free software, you know, um, and, and put it in the cloud. And it was, you know, this whole like counterculture thing. Um, and and in many ways, I still feel like they are a really good example of the cloud. Like they, um, they take a lot of feedback on features from their customers and their customers can vote on the features they most want. And every quarter they do a new release and you go to go home from work on Friday and you come back to work on Monday and suddenly you have all these new features that were the features most requested by their customers. And so um, that doesn't sound like rocket science, but a lot of other cloud companies, I, I still think like, you're not getting the full adva- advantage that you should from the cloud. And so at the show, what they tend to do is release some major new feature that's free and instantly available to all the, the users on the cloud. So like a couple of years ago, they launched Einstein, which was their AI module. And it was, you know, a free new thing for all their customers. Um, so this year, they launched a, a major new platform that's free to all existing customers called Customer 360 Truth. I think they're starting to struggle with their naming conventions a little bit here. Um, but the, this is, is interesting. Like, I feel like this is very on trend. Um, so it's a couple of kind of customer data features rolled into a, a meta offering. So the meta offering is called Customer 360 Truth. And I think Truth stands for kind of, it's the single source of truth for all customer data. And the, the modules inside of it is they have kind of a, a data manager that lets you map all your data from your various Salesforce and non-Salesforce systems into a, a single universal data platform. So uh, that's, that's based on customer and it has a unique ID for each customer. So like normally we would call that a CDP or a customer data platform. So it seems like Salesforce has launched one and they've made it free to all their existing customers. And so that the actual example they used on stage was a retail example. They had Louis Vuitton and they commented how, you know, <coughs> excuse me, despite the fact that Louis Vuitton uses the marketing cloud and the commerce cloud that the, you know, the keynote speaker bought some cool Louis Vuitton shoes last week and he got an email, you know, marketing them this week because the in-store POS doesn't know, you know, the, uh, the, the email system doesn't know that the in-store POS sold the shoes. Um, and so with this new 
360 data manager, you get to relatively easily plumb all that data together. And then the marketing cloud knows to, you know, market stuff to people that already bought those shoes instead of to, to try to sell you the shoes you already bought. Um, so uh, the CDP space is pretty popular right now. It makes total sense that Salesforce would be in it. Kind of big news that they are not trying to sell it, but they, they're giving it away. And because they, a lot of companies already have a lot of their data in Salesforce, that's a pretty big competitive advantage that it's kind of one click and you load all that data in and all the data mapping and stuff is already done for you. So that's pretty slick. Um, a new problem we're all struggling with is data governance and privacy. Um, you know, there's a, a European data standard and the California data standard goes live January 1st. And so, you know, suddenly we all need new metadata about who has permissioned what rights to us for what data and how we collected it and all that sort of stuff. And so, Part of this 360 trust is a privacy and data governance module, which is a product a lot of people are having to buy right now to get compliant. So that's interesting. Um, and then they have a customer and audiences module. And I, I may have the name wrong. Um, but I, this to me sounds sort of like what we would in the advertising space traditionally call a DMP or a data management platform. And so this is kind of um, the ability to take all this data that you've now ag aggregated um, and like create audiences and segments for specific campaigns and specific uses. So it's the ability to do really sophisticated slicing and dicing of all this customer data you have and to work with known data, i.e. people that you actually know and also unknown data, i.e. you know anonymous users that have touched you but haven't identified themselves. So, so that's kind of a pretty comprehensive, interesting product that they launched that's basically available immediately, at least in... In, in their sandbox. Um, and so I'm sure some customers are excited about that. Is the CDP thing an acquisition or something they built organically? To the best of my knowledge, they built it because I, I am not familiar with a specific acquisition. Um, there are like a lot of the plumbing, like, so a big part of this is, is um, data mapping and transformation. And they, they bought a very big company in that space, MuleSoft, um, last year. So it wouldn't surprise me if they leveraged some of that capability in here, but you know, they also had new announcements around how MuleSoft was developing as a standalone tool. So, um, so don't know, but I, I'm not specifically aware that they bought a CDP. Do you view this as disruptive in the CDP world? Because if you already have Salesforce and you get this for free, then you're going yeah, to, I think if you're a customer that has, has like, you know, very much data in the Salesforce cloud, it's, it's definitely going to be a much tougher sell for anyone else. Um, and I, you know, I would say a lot of people that have implemented CDPs have had a lot of trouble getting the anticipated return or value out of it. Right. Like they, you know, the, uh, the IT departments love to move around all this data and buy all these new tools but they often don't have buy-in from the business users and they often like don't, don't change their marketing activities based on having these new tools. And so you don't get a very good ROI. And um, because Salesforce has a lot of the marketing tools, um, you know, I think they have a better chance to be successful. I mean, I think it's going to mostly go head to head with Adobe that, you know, also has a very robust marketing stack and has their own CDP. Um, but yeah, I'm sure the rest of the CDP vendors would rather Salesforce have not gotten into this space. Yeah. And then um, if I remember from our deep dive on personalization, that's kind of the heart of personalization a lot of times is this CDP thing, right? Exactly. And, uh, and you know, Salesforce has a lot of personalization features. They have a pretty robust AI capability that they, they have branded Einstein. And so, 
Um, the kind of one of the cool things about the cloud is like you do, do this data mapping, you plug better data into it and all the recommendation tools you have and the AI tools you have just start working better without really having to do any new implementations or anything else, which is to me pretty cool. It's kind of like when you get up in the morning and your Tesla is faster. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then they had some more, uh, some other product announcements. I, I, I mentioned Einstein a couple of times. The big Einstein announcement is that they, they're beta testing Einstein voice. So this is a natural language processing engine for all the Salesforce tools. And so the, the use case they demoed is, you know, you're in a, in a sales meeting with a customer and you walk out of the meeting and now you kind of dictate your notes into the Salesforce app. Uh, you just using natural language. And, you know, Salesforce logs that contact in the CRM and, you know, creates a forecast if that's appropriate or, you know, um, all those kinds of things. Uh, they did a couple other use cases that are kind of cool where it can listen to sales calls on the phone and listen to customer service calls on the phone and, um, you know, either do kind of post-call analysis and recommend different things to the salesperson than what they actually did, you know, based on its artificial intelligence. Or in the case of the customer service module, it can be calling up like knowledge articles and, and, uh, and helpful resolutions to a problem just while it's listening to the, the, the customer service person talk to the customer. So, so some potentially can, interesting uses of voice. Um, that seemed a little less like live and a little more kind of this is the early version. Um, and then they announced some partnership. Well, I guess this first one's not a partnership. Salesforce bought Tableau last year, which is a, a big uh, uh, data visualization, data analytics tool. Um, and so they announced that the full integration of Tableau and Salesforce. So now if you're a Salesforce customer, you get the whole Tableau capability set to use against your data for free. So that's kind of cool. Gives Salesforce a much better data visualization and analytics capability. And then they announced partnerships with three other companies. So they announced a, a partner or they renewed a partnership with Apple. They announced this partnership a few years ago. And this mostly takes the form of they launched all new Salesforce apps to run on iOS. And so they have a, like a pretty robust um, interface for all their tools that runs on iOS. And, and that's where they demoed the Einstein voice is kind of talking into that app and stuff. So that was, that's kind of cool. Um, they announced a partnership with Amazon. And uh, I would call this one the least interesting. Um, they have made a version of their customer service module standalone and they're selling it as, a, as an app on AWS. So if you're an AWS customer, you can turn on this customer success portal from, from Salesforce. Uh, they announced that some of that Einstein voice stuff that we just talked about is available in beta on the Alexa devices. Um, so you potentially could dictate your sales notes into an Alexa instead of in your phone. Um, and they announced some training material. The, uh, Salesforce has a big learning portal, and they announced that AWS training is a, is now available on the on the Salesforce training portal. So kind of pedestrian stuff there, I would say. And then the last announcement, which was a little surprising to me, was a partnership with Microsoft. And the the biggest component of this is that they're moving the whole marketing cloud. Uh, to uh, Microsoft Azure. So this is, to my knowledge, the first time Salesforce has kind of formally picked a, a public cloud to host uh, their solutions on. I think heretofore, like most of the apps have run on Salesforce's own cloud. So 
um, kind of uh, interesting and I'm sure a big win for Microsoft. Cool. The, so I guess that won't really impact customers. It's just kind of like the back end where it's hosted. Yeah, no, it's more an inside baseball thing. Like I'm sure, you know, if you're Google cloud platform, you're upset. And I, you know, I almost feel like the AWS announcement might've been to kind of soften the blow that they didn't pick AWS. Very cool. The other big event that has happened since our last podcast uh, that where we covered news is Singles Day. Did, did you track? Uh, I, I had to be at a fleet conference, so I was not able to track Singles Day very closely. Did you see how that went? I did. I kept an eye on it. It's um, it's almost gone so mature that it like personally, I'll say it's like slightly less exciting for me um, than it, it was four years ago when we started this podcast, for example. Um, but not shockingly, uh, they had another big year. So uh, total sales for the day were $38.38 billion in US. Um, so that's a, a huge number. That's more than six times bigger than the biggest e-commerce day in North America. Um, the scale is just amazing. And there are all these ridiculous stats about how many orders they take in the first minute and the first hour and all that stuff. Like Partly because they pre-sell all these sales for so much that customers have queued up a lot of purchases and they log on the first first second of the sale and click buy. Uh, to my knowledge, Alibaba's never had any major infrastructure problems with this day, which is like super impressive to me because um, this feels like one of the biggest stress tests of IT and of delivery infrastructure like in the world. And it seems like they nail it every year. Um, the one thing I would say, so that, that, $38 billion represents 26% year-over-year growth, which is, for the first time ever, a deceleration in the rate of growth. Um, so, you know, the day might be kind of maturing a little bit. Um, the thing I go in a singles day looking for most is if there's any evidence that they're expanding their international reach. So singles day, like, definitely uh, plays to a broader audience than just China, but it it tends to live primarily in Asia, and there's some you know, Western retailers that try to piggyback on it, but, but Alibaba themselves have, you know, their main push is to get Western brands on the platform selling to Asia for singles day, not get Western consumers shopping on singles day. And I would say like, I, I saw less evidence this year than I had in the past that they were even sort of leaning in that direction. Um, but it's definitely true that, you know, Western brands tend to be amongst the biggest uh, sellers and fastest runners on singles day. Like it, it was a mix this year. So there were like 15 brands that did over a billion won in sales. And that was like Chinese companies like Weiwei, a Japanese company like fast retailing that owns Uniqlo. Um, and then, you know, it's Apple and Nike. So um, kind of a good mix. Uh, food supplements are actually the biggest category. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of people buying like like uh, gourmet food and nutritional supplements, um, mostly imported uh, products. Um, and then cosmetics, makeup, uh, beauty art are the second biggest category and are quite huge. Uh, and then, uh, you know, stuff like family care, like diapers do well too. So, uh, so good day all around. Um, it felt like generally continuations of trends that we've seen in the past rather than something wildly different this year. Cool. Used to be um, Amazon would be up on that list as well. I wonder if they had a good Singles Day. I, I didn't see anything about it. Yeah, I didn't see them referenced. And, you know, Singles Day falls on Veterans Day in the U.S. Um, 
and obviously, you know, it's a, a short period of time before Thanksgiving and this year, because, you know, there are fewer days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like a lot of people started their Thanksgiving promotions earlier. So, yeah. So, you know, it all sort of blends together. So it's hard to isolate the effect of any of these one things anymore. Yeah. Cool. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without some Amazon news. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. The big Amazon news that we want to report on is, uh, uh, and this is kind of interesting. So on the 13th of November, um, and I call this kind of the, the holiday punch in the nose, uh, Nike pretty publicly announced that they are going to suspend that pilot program where they were selling direct on Amazon. Um, there's a lot of, they started this in 2017. There's a lot of speculation that, so John Donahoe, who was CEO of eBay uh, and then went to uh, a SaaS company for a while. And then it now um, has become CEO of Nike um, that, that he had something to do with this, obviously not a huge Amazon fan. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Jason, what did, what did you make of that one? Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot of speculation. I tend to agree with the speculation that like, when Nike started this pilot in in 2017, I think it was, um, that it wasn't necessarily an effort to sell a ton of product on Amazon and that Nike sort of felt like they had to be on Amazon for their customers. The speculation was uh, that they wanted more leverage over Amazon to help am uh, get Amazon to cooperate with sort of anti-counterfeit, anti-gray marketing. Um, and so, you know, a lot of us think that that they they put, a limited assortment of Nike products and certainly not the like popular new releases on Amazon in order to have a more informal business relationship with Amazon to achieve some of these softer goals. And, uh, you know, now the inference is that didn't work very well or, uh, Donahue felt like it wasn't worth it or, or, you know, whatever the case is, but it, it doesn't, it never seemed like it was a full court press to create an amazing Amazon, uh, Nike brand experience on Amazon. Um, but I, uh, I still like, I think it's interesting. I think it definitely gives cover to a lot of other brands that are on the fence about whether they should be on Amazon or not. Like I, uh, I definitely think when Amazon Nike moved on there, it made it harder for other brands to say like, we don't think that's right for our brand. Um, and now like, I think it, they're, they're not on there. I think it makes it easier for other brands to make that same move. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what, how other brands react. The part of, I think, what Nike was thinking when they did this was they could control. Part of this was, you know, kind of simultaneously Amazon put the clamps on people selling Nike product in the third-party marketplace. So I haven't heard anything, but it'll be interesting to see if those, you know, come off as well. And then, so what'll happen is this product will still be on the, on Amazon, but just through the third-party marketplace. And I would argue Amazon probably makes more money that way anyway. So I think Amazon will be okay. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, no, I, I wouldn't cry for it. I don't, you know, don't stay up all night worrying about Amazon, Jason. I, I was not going to, but you actually reminded me of another great point. I actually heard some rumors uh, that in the run up to this, that Nike may have been actively soliciting some of their authorized dealers to become third party sellers. So like Nike may have even decided to help make sure that the, the product stayed on the platform when they pulled uh, off the one piece sales. Very cool. Um, 
And I would just add one one other thing that's a little more about Nike than Amazon. But the um, to me, Nike being on Amazon uh, was kind of counterintuitive because the same time they announced this pilot, they announced this big initiative to cut way back on the number of wholesalers that they had. And the premise was, we only want to work with retailers that have a really differentiated customer experience. Otherwise, we would just rather sell direct. And so they literally had like 30,000 businesses that were selling Nike shoes and allegedly, they tried to cut that down to 40. Um, and these 40 all had to kind of commit to have an enhanced Nike experience. So think of like Nordstrom with a Nike shop in shop or things like that. Um, so to be kind of a commodity on Amazon at the same time you're making that other shift kind of felt incongruitous. And uh, they've really had a lot of success with that initiative. So in 2013, so a while ago, 19% of their sales were direct to consumer Today, 30% of their sales are direct to consumer. And it's a that's a big number in Nike's case. So that's pretty successful. Uh, they're like 35% of their growth, uh, their their online sales are growing at 35%. Same store sales grow at like 6%. So like most of the growth is coming from their online direct to consumer, which is super interesting. Um, and I talk a lot about Nike being really good at digital in-store and doing a lot of really smart things in their house of innovations and their Nike towns. And uh, one bit of news I didn't get to cover when it happened, but uh, that I think is super interesting is um, that Nike has this really good app that lets you kind of specify shoes you want to try on. And and in a Nike store, the shoes get delivered to a locker and you can try them on and buy them without ever having to talk to a Nike salesperson. They're now piloting that capability in Foot Locker stores. So you walk into a footlocker in the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan and you can use the Nike Plus app to try to win merchandise in the footlocker store. You can order merchandise and it gets delivered to a Nike locker inside the footlocker store. It's, a, it's super smart and interesting for Nike. It was shocking to me for footlocker because it essentially means that footlocker is encouraging customers to use the Nike app in footlocker and, you know, like that doesn't help their Adidas sales very much. So it was, it, that was a an interesting thing that I'd never seen before where a brand had a successfully done a takeover of the in-store digital experience of a retailer. Yeah, yeah, it must be complicated to manage all these different brand experiences at some point. Yeah, and then one other, like, so I started with an irony of, of uh, and I'll finish with an irony. Uh, this announcement that they're pulling off of Amazon happened two days after Singles Day. And of course- Nike is one of the biggest presences and is all in on, on singles day. So they, you know, they, one of those 40 retailers definitely is Alibaba. Yeah. One of the, uh, I'll remind listeners, one of the kind of previous punch, holiday punches in the nose that Amazon received was from Toys R Us. So we'll, we'll see how this goes for Nike. I, it's never a good idea to kind of flip your nose at Amazon. So maybe we'll see some Amazon basics shoes with swoosh like things on them soon. Yep, yeah, it'd be interesting to watch. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, another quick Amazon one. Um, they did announce that they are going to start a week of Black Friday deals on the 22nd. So they're they're going to have a week of Black Friday deals. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. Um, they've kind of settled on on this deal format where they've got kind of a combo of uh, they've got the, the gold box, they've got some lightning deals, a deal of the day, and, and then they rotate a bunch of that stuff. And in the past, they've experimented with some video and whatnot. 
So it's going to be, I'll be watching on the 22nd, just kind of get a flavor for, is there some new kind of platform and the deals um, as they kick off Black Friday deals? Yeah. Yeah. I'm watching it. And uh, uh, we talked a little bit about this, but the, you know, they also published their physical toy catalog. And one of the things they did a really good job this year in their toy catalog is kind of um, digital integration in the paper catalog and, and sort of click to buy capability. And so um, I thought that was really smart. And then I noticed the, the Walmart toy catalog holiday catalog just came out and this is the first time Walmart has implemented that capability as well. So that seems like the new, the new standard in catalogs is you finally have to, you know, make your catalogs digital friendly. Cool. The, uh, any other Amazon news before we go on to Walmart earnings? Yeah, just two quick uh, tidbits on grocery. Um, so we've talked about the fact that Walmart or Amazon has some real estate in Los Angeles and, they, and that they intend to open some grocery stores in Los Angeles. Um, they they responded to some press inquiries last week, and in one of the one of the questions was, "Are these stores going to be JWAT stores, just walk out stores? So will they will they use Amazon Go in this LA market in these much bigger grocery stores?" And Amazon said no. So um, that was kind of a definitive answer that you know these grocery stores aren't going to be bigger Go stores. And of course, all the speculation is that they're going to be lower priced uh, uh, grocery stores like targeted at a broader audience. Um, and so. Uh, we're all going to be eager to see when in January these stores open and I'll, I'll sure make a trek out to LA to, to get out of the winter and do some shopping uh, in the new Amazon grocery concept. Um, but then there was an article that came out this week that although they're not using Amazon go in this LA market concept that they're opening, that Amazon did admit that they have a dark store, a, pr- a private store that they only, you know, let, let test customers and employees into in Seattle, that's a 20,000 square foot grocery store uh, that is using uh, the Amazon Go technology. So they apparently are um, pressure testing and stress testing the the Amazon Go technology for a bigger form factor store, which is interesting. And uh, in that same article, they also acknowledge that they're actively talking to several retailers um, about potentially licensing the technology. And one of the ideas was apparently Amazon has productized kind of a, a small kiosk version of the Go technology that you might use at like an airport or a hotel lobby. Um, and that uh, a SIBO, which is a sort of a, a gourmet food and convenience store concept that's in a lot of airports, it was apparently named as a potential licensee for that. So it's going to be interesting stuff to watch. Very cool. And then we have a couple earnings to report on. Um, so first up is Walmart. Yeah. Um, and, uh, not shocking, but they, they had a good earnings call. So, uh, revenue was up 3.3%, uh, same store sales in the U S were up 6.6%. So the U S is doing better than international for them. Um, econ was up 41%. So that's right in the range that they've been announcing every quarter. They've been kind of bouncing around between 39 and 45%. They promised that for the year they'd be up 40%. So 41%, um, feels good. And, uh, you know, uh, Doug McMillan acknowledged that the bulk of that growth in e-commerce is grocery and specifically grocery pickup. And, and he did kind of, uh, talk about the, the elephant in the room on that, that that growth is not particularly profitable. And that, you know, one of the goals for Walmart is 
that they, they need to do a much better job of selling more stuff to those, those grocery customers to make those sales more profitable. And so what's interesting about that is the AOV on grocery pickup is already higher, like twice as high as the AOV in the store. But what isn't happening in grocery is you're not adding any general merchandise to that order. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the big challenges that, that uh, Doug McMillan talked about is they've got to turn online grocery customers into overall Walmart customers. And, you know, spoiler, at the moment, there's a separate app that you use to buy groceries than there is to buy general merchandise. And so, you know, uh, they call that the gold and the blue app. And don't be surprised if you see the feature set of those two apps kind of merge in order to affect this goal that Doug was talking about. Um, but it is interesting to me, they're at 1,400 of their stores now do grocery delivery. 3,000 of their stores now do grocery pickup. Again, they have about 4,000 stores in the U.S. So they can expand for another quarter and add 1,000 more stores and keep having this kind of growth. But you know, uh, it's very likely that growth is going to slow down once they get to 4,000 stores that are all doing grocery pickup and delivery. Um, and then it's going to be really critical that they change the customer behavior or their, or their comps are going to be really challenging. Um, and then kind of related to the, to the earnings announcement, um, they did introduce their new CEO for the U S. So there used to be a CEO named Greg Ferran. He left to become the president of New Zealand airlines. He's a native New Zealander. So best of luck to Greg. And they promoted John, uh, Fermer, who was the former CEO of Sam's club, uh, to be the president of the U S so he's a, a longtime uh, Walmart guy, but he's a really young guy. So um, uh, congrats to him. And it's going to be interesting to see how he does at Walmart. And then they backfilled his job um, with Catherine McLay, who used to run neighborhood markets. So that's the, the standalone Walmart grocery concept. And so she steps up to become the CEO of Sam's Club. So kind of uh, some, some internal uh, matriculation happening at, at, uh, at Walmart. Cool. So, so Mark Laurie reports right to McMillan, right? So, would does he is e-commerce kind of a cross section? So the U.S. guy effectively just runs stores, and e-commerce is separate. How how does that? Yeah, work? yeah. So there's two presidents of the U.S. There's there's the president of stores, which it was Greg and now John, and there's the president of digital, which is Mark. They both report to the CEO of Walmart, which is Doug McMillan, and. Uh, they the like there's a chief customer officer that's kind of above marketing um and she reports to both of them so she kind of you know has to report to to the digital and the the uh, stores um and you know i think some of the old articles from last year about walmart were about like some sort of friction between the store guy and the digital guy and the fact that you know a lot of the digital growth was actually being delivered by the stores with this online grocery pickup and that, you know, Mark was kind of getting credit for it, but it was probably the store guy doing most of the work. So it'll be interesting. Um, John's a little younger than Greg. You know, I, uh, I think it's a fair assumption that he's a little more digitally native than Greg was. And so it'll be interesting to see if he has a different relationship with Mark than Greg did. Cool. So then uh, on the heels of that, we had target earnings. And this is what in the world of Wall Street, we effectively call a beat and raise. So this was really well received by Wall Street. So the beat part, um, expectations was EPS of $1.19. It came in well north of that at $1.36. 
Um, and then they bumped up the guidance. Uh, Wall Street was expecting 590 to 620 on the revenue side, uh, and they came in at 625 to 645. So they kind of moved the range of guidance up above kind of what Wall Street was expecting. So uh, shares were, were up pretty sharply. Uh, I saw thanks to this, so that was good. Um, and then there was uh, their e-commerce was up 31%. This always gets me back to this question we, we, we talk about probably like every 10 shows or so. If everyone's e-commerce is growing north of 30%, these are big companies. So Amazon's at like 25, Walmart we have at 41, Target here at 31. How on earth, even like Shopify is growing uh, I forget their number, but it's it's like 30%, I think, last time I saw GMV-wise. Then we have e-commerce growing at 15%. I I, I don't know how that works. Something something has to be like a negative uh, growth. Even eBay is like just flat, so it's not going to really be a, a negative trend there. So I come to the conclusion e-commerce is either growing faster than we think it is or or there's some piece, some dark matter in there that we don't have any visibility on that, that – just just befuddling to me, but anyway, I, I digress. Um, did you see anything interesting in the target earnings? They 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 talk a lot about ship from stores. So I'm sure you you were interested in that. Yeah, yeah, that was super interesting. Uh, we've talked about it before, but uh, my answer to your conundrum below is that e-commerce is growing faster than we think, and the problem is like all of these these uh, companies that come out and say e-commerce is growing at 15 percent have indexed their their forecast to the U.S. Department of Commerce data. And the U.S. Department of Commerce data is flawed for, for e-commerce, particularly for omni-channel e-commerce. And so when Walmart says they grow 41%, and that's mostly people going to pick up groceries at the curb, the U.S. Department of Commerce counts that as a, a store sale. So that's part of your problem. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, the target announcement was super interesting to me for some of the granular data they shared about, um, their curbside pickup. So first of all, they said, Hey, we grew 31%, 80% of that growth, um, was pickup in store orders. Uh, so, so that the, the, you know, they bought this company shipped, um, they, they, uh, really enhanced their curbside pickup capabilities they do uh, deliveries from store and they do, they actually built little uh, mail rooms in the back of all their stores and they do ship from store. And so the, that store inventory is being used for 80% of their digital growth, which is huge. And then most interesting um, is that they said that when a customer comes to the store to pick up an order, so we don't have to ship it to the customer, that takes 80% out of our costs or 90% rather out of our costs. So uh, a curbside pickup order costs us 10% of what a ship to home order costs us. And when we get a ship to home order and we can ship it from a store, uh, that costs, that's 40% cheaper than shipped from a fulfillment center. And so um, the, you know, a debate has always been like, gosh, these stores aren't going to be as efficient at picking and shipping as a fulfillment center. So, you know, the unit economics could arguably be worse um, to pick and ship. And then the counter argument is, but you're shipping in a way shorter distance because the, the inventory is already a lot closer to the customer. And so the shipping cost should be lower. And, you know, people debated about whether that netted out positive or negative for the retailer. And what Target is saying is, man, when we can ship something from a store that gets there faster to the customer and it saves us a bunch of money. And when we can get the customer to come to us and pick it up, it saves us 
a boatload of money. And that's what most of our customers are doing. So to me, um, that's super encouraging for Target and it's fascinating. And it really highlights to me um, the difference between the Walmart and Target strategy. Um, so one problem with all this ship from store and pick up in store stuff is you can only sell the inventory you have in the store, right? Um, and so Target's got 65,000 SKUs in the store. And so Target's digital strategy is to sell those 65,000 SKUs. Um, if you're Walmart, you have like 200,000 SKUs in the store, but you're trying to compete with Amazon for the total wallet share and you're trying to sell tens of millions or hundreds of millions of SKUs. And so, you know, Walmart has totally leaned into building more fulfillment centers and developing a marketplace um, and that, that kind of thing to sort of get their, their um, catalog up to be, you know, competitive with Amazon and they're making progress in doing that, but it really makes the unit economics challenging for Walmart. Whereas Target is selling a much more constrained catalog, um, but they're actually able to do that profitably. Um, and so, it, you know, it's kind of, I'm not sure one strategy is right or wrong, but it feels like, uh, Walmart is trying to hit a home run and compete with Amazon and Target is trying to hit a sort of a, a single or a double and, you know, being more successful at doing it. The, so one thing that doesn't add up for me, so the store has 65,000 items. Target's website has, I would imagine, orders of magnitude more than that, right? Uh, maybe a order of magnitude more. They have more, but it's not, Target does not it's have not, millions of products. Okay, so it's, so, yeah, but let's say it's 100 and- Yeah, it could be 200,000 200, items. Yeah, yeah. let's say 200,000. Yeah. Um, the chances are, you know, that- the thing you order online is not going to be in the store. So do they, you know, are they pushing people to order things in the store in some way? Like, is it top of search results or yeah? I, I, uh, how, how are they, or it just happens to be the head of the distribution curve and that's kind of the 80, 20 rule. Yeah. So I, I do, I think it's partly that, that, uh, uh, 80, 20 rule. Um, but I do think target is more actively merchandising the in-store assortment and our, you know, um, than than are some other retailers and and you know it is I think it's true because they have a I mean two hundred thousand still a lot of items but um and I don't know this for a fact but I would bet you anything that the percentage of customers on Target that find products through the guided navigation is much higher um, than the percentage of people that find products through the guided navigation on Amazon or Walmart like the Walmart and Amazon assortments are so big that guided navigation is used very little and almost everybody has to find things through search. But Target is so much more known for curation. A lot more of what Target sells are their own brands, brands that are exclusively available uh, through Target. Um, and like, I, I do think they have like a more curated taxonomy that's more friendly to shopping. And so, you know, part, part of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy is that, you know, more people are clicking through the menus they're seeing the first page of that menu result. They're buying stuff. That's all stuff that's in the store. Um, I, I think that's literally the target strategy, and it's kind of opposite of the Amazon Walmart strategy. Cool. And then um, a couple acquisitions to talk about. The first one uh, that I think shocked both of us, uh, PayPal acquired Honey. Honey is a what I would call a browser extension. So it sits there. You install it into your Chrome or your Safari or your Internet Explorer who um, has a new name that I always forget. And um, 
you know, it kind of watches your shopping behavior. And if it sees you throw something in your cart somewhere, it will go and try to find a lower price. So it's essentially, there's like, uh, it's kind of interesting. There's tons of these out there. Um, none of them have gotten a lot of traction, but for some reason, Honey has done a really good job with marketing and, and you know, seems to have a pretty good user base. Um, the thing that's shocking about this one is uh, a couple of things. So first of all, the price tag of $4 billion, this is a, uh, as best we've seen reported, this is a $200 million revenue company. So that's kind of a 20 times multiple. So that suggests to me there was some kind of a bidding war here. The other thing I, I wonder how PayPal navigated is I would imagine. So if you think of Amazon having 50% of e-commerce, um, you know, it's probably 50% of the honey um, activity or more is on Amazon. Um, my understanding is there's some kind of an affiliate relationship there. Um, so, so Amazon hasn't blocked honey, but now that it has a new owner, if I'm Amazon, you know, do I really want, you know, PayPal owning this, there's going to be some, you're, you know, they're going to probably preference PayPal payments. Amazon doesn't, doesn't take PayPal. You know, let, let's say something happens in there and Amazon turns off honey, um, which, which is very viable. You know, you can look at the IP and, and just shut the crawlers down that they have. Uh, you know, that thing has huge exposure from getting in a war with Amazon. So uh, I hope PayPal has thought through that and, you know, gotten some, some way around that challenge. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to that one. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, Amazon can try to shut them down. They can make it way harder for honey, but like there are companies that successfully still do stuff with Amazon, <laughs> even though Amazon doesn't want them to. I, I'm not saying that's the position you want to be in, but uh, I'm not sure it would completely exclude them. It would just make it much harder if Amazon uh, got active at, at preventing it. Um, but I actually think they might have a broader version of that problem, you know, vis-a-vis PayPal in that like i i don't know that much about honey but i imagine that the retailers have a love hate relationship with them if you're not a honey partner and people are shopping on your site um and honey is trying to divert those customers to a site that is a honey partner um you don't like honey very much right so if you're target and you're not paying honey and when you you know try to buy stuff on on target it's saying like hey there's this uh, other retailer that has a lower price um or, you know, uh, Honey says like, hey, they have a promo code over here, these kinds of things. Um, that, you know, has the potential to to alienate a bunch of retailers. And those are the same retailers that PayPal is trying to get to adopt their platform. Um, so it is possible that they're going to have some customer conflict here. Um, don't don't know enough to know that for sure yet, but but it's going to be interesting to, to see how it all plays out. And, uh, and per your point, I sure hope, PayPal thought through that when they paid $4 billion for them. Yeah. And we should probably rename this segment. Scott and Jason are super jealous or why didn't we think of that? So, so number one, congrats to the honey guys for, <laughs> Absolutely. for, for getting this exit. And then uh, the other one that was kind of mind blowing was Kylie Jenner. She started a makeup company. Um, and, you know, obviously she's, she and her whole Kardashian clan there are, are really big influencers. Um, but this has blown up to over 200 million in revenue very quickly. And she sold half of the business to the large uh, conglomerate uh, in the beauty category called Cody for 600 million, which is effectively gives that a $1.2 billion uh, valuation. And the real mind blower is the company has six employees. Yeah, that revenue per employee works out to be pretty good, huh? 
Yeah, I have a feeling Kylie may take a disproportionate amount of that, but we'll uh, we don't we'll probably never know. Yeah, no, it's that's super interesting, and I I mean it's a nuance, but I think Cody actually bought fifty one percent, so that's they have a controlling interest, um, which is somewhat interesting. Like I wonder if that will in any way put off uh, Kylie Jenner fans, um, but. I, I mean, mad props to her. Like, I think she's actually totally changed the way influencers think about monetizing their popularity. Because before this, they all would take money to sell other people's stuff. And this model has been so successful that you now see a lot of other popular influencers saying, hey, I'm not going to promote someone else's product. I'm going to launch my own products. And so there, there's a lot, of, a lot of folks trying to follow in her footsteps. But this is a you know, a, a huge home run and uh, congrats to Shopify, by the way, because that's, you know, this is probably the biggest, biggest uh, retailer on the Shopify platform. Yeah. Cool. And uh, it's also important to point out that this is uh, also a DNVB kind of, kind of a strategy here. Um, so uh, the, I imagine a fairly large percentage of her sales are from her website. And then um, she does, I think she does sell through, I always get, Get confused which one, but she's in uh, either Sephora or uh, Ulta. Yeah, and I think she started out online only, and then only in the last year has she added the the wholesale distribution. But so, yeah, for sure. Um, so, so, Jason and I have a big announcement. We are starting the Jason and Scott uh, Beauty Company, and we're going to come out with a palette for holiday 2020. So, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to have to upgrade the servers for the mass influx of traffic we get for that, but uh, uh, looking forward to it. And uh, it will include a browser plugin, which will help you buy our product instead of anyone else's product on the web. So we're kind of think of it as honey plus Kylie Jenner. Yeah. We'll just call it Scott and Jason honey or something like that. We're still working on the brand. Exactly. Exactly. Send your suggestions to Scott. Um, and sadly, that's going to be where we're going to have to leave it because we have used up all our allotted time. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments, we'll have, uh, to hit us up on uh, Twitter or our Facebook page. And uh, please, 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 this is a great time for holidays to give us that special gift and uh, go to iTunes and give us that five-star review. The The reviews keep keep coming, but we we want and need more, and we really appreciate them. Thanks, everyone. We're... Uh... Stay tuned for episode 200. I think you're going to love it. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be fun next week. And until then, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 